What's up, guys? It's Kid Carson. This is Alexandra Kitty. This is Danielle Smith. Hey, everybody. This is Paul Brandt. Jeremy McKenzie, RagingDissident.com. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Monday. I hope everybody's uh, weekend was a good one. I tell you what, um, what did you think of the five podcasts in one week, folks? <laughs> I tell you what, I don't know if I... Uh, could have predicted that I'd be doing that in my wildest dreams, um, but I'm having a lot of fun on this side. So I hope, you know, I got a ton of uh, texts in from all of you uh, all across the map, um, enjoying the different uh, variations. So I hope you're enjoying it. Um, if you missed Thursday's roundtable with the Western Standard, uh, we're going to be doing a few of these pilot episodes here as we move forward in the month of September, seeing the, the temperature form, seeing if there's any want or, or not for them. So, uh, keep an eye on those Thursday nights, uh, seven o'clock they'll be released on the podcast and on the Western standard just to kind of keep everybody in the loop. And as you, as you know, you, you went from one, three and a half years ago now to five. So just to keep you kind of in the loop, if you're, uh, looking for tickets, SMC, SMP presents, uh, quick Dick McDick and 222 minutes go in the show notes and, uh, you can, uh, find, uh, the link for for tickets that's November fifth, and uh, certainly with my first sponsor of today's episode, Canadians for Truth. Uh, here September twenty fourth, I'm going to be on stage with Theo Fleury, Joseph Borgo, and Jamie Slay, introducing or I I don't know if it's introducing. I tell you what, I'm just as interested as the rest of you in what they're what they're doing with this media uh, corporation, media company. I don't know what to call it yet. Um, but Canadians for Truth, they are the first sponsor today, and I'm looking forward to September 24th to being on stage with them and seeing exactly how this goes. I I'm curious, you know, like I I I'm kind of interested to see where it goes. Anyways, that's a side note. Let's get to today's uh, guest. Um, uh, before we get there, today's guest, blah, as I spitball here, uh, I told you guys a, a couple episodes ago, I've been trying really hard not to stop and re-record and blah, blah, blah. Well, this is the problem with that. I start rambling. Anyways, Canadians for Truth, they're a nonprofit organization consisting of Canadians who believe in honesty, integrity, and principled leadership in government, as well as the Canadian Bill of Rights, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and the Rule of Just Laws. And like I said multiple times there, Theo, they've teamed up with Theo Fleury, Jamie Slay, and Joseph Borgo. Those three are going to have different shows coming out. They're forming a media... Uh, um, corporation, company, I don't know what we're going to call this. Uh, you heard about with Ryan Olson last week. And so we'll have to keep uh, our eyes open for that. That's CanadiansForTruth.ca or go on their Facebook and, and see what they're doing there. Either way, we're going to find out here awfully quick um, what Canadian for Truth is all about. Uh, certainly excited to uh, to hear more about it. Um, <clears throat> man, sorry, I got something right in the old... Uh, right in the old throat. Tyson and Tracy Mitchell with Mitchco Environmental, a family-owned business that's been providing professional vegetation management services for both Alberta and Saskatchewan in the oil field and industrial sectors since 1998. Hopefully, Mr. Tyson, you're getting a little reprieve. Uh, their busy season is through the summer, and when they're going, they are uh, full out. And uh, last time I bumped into Tyson, uh, he looked like, uh, you look good, big fella, but I... I <laughs> It looked uh, like a truck had run them over, uh, so to speak. Um, they're always looking for good people, and I know that's what we got talking about when I bumped into them last. And if you're looking for work, 
Uh, certainly they're, they're slowing down here into the winter seasons, but they're always looking for good people. I think all companies, uh, as things ramp up are, and if you want, uh, to look into them, mitchcocorp.ca or give them a call 780-214-4004. They're always hiring. They're always interested and you can reach them, uh, there. Uh, Clay Smiley, the Prophet River team, they helped get on Terry Bryant, the Alberta Chiefs Firearms Officer. I got a lot of feedback from uh, all you fine folks about how interesting that was. Well, Prophet River, they specialize in importing firearms uh, from the United States. They got a giant brand new showroom. They moved into the old cooler here in Lloydminster. So if you're going through Lloydminster, you got to stop in, take a look at what they got going on in Lloyd. It's a giant showroom. Uh, pretty cool there. If, you, if you're if you not anywhere near Lloyd, no worries. They serve all of Canada. Just go to ProfitRiver.com. They can help uh, with all your needs. They are the major retailer of firearms, optics, and accessories, and they serve all of Canada. Carly Kloss and the team over at Windsor Plywood, builders of the podcast studio table for everything wood. These are the guys. Um, deck season is uh, quiet, uh, quietly, quickly uh, going by us. I hate saying things like that. And believe me, I was uh, got the fire table going the, the other night. I was enjoying uh, a little bit of a, a calm night. It's a little cooler, but you can still have a little bit of fun. Well, I tell you what, if you're looking for any wood, uh, people come in and take a look at the podcast studio table all the time, and the chunk of lumber is just something else. You go into Windsor Plywood, and I tell you what, that's what they, they got. They got these great pieces of wood, and of course they do more than that. You know, whether we're talking mantles, decks, windows, doors, sheds, they got it all. Just stop in today and see the team over at Windsor Plywood or here in Lloyd. Give them a call, 780-875-9663. If you're looking for rental properties here in Lloydminster, the Border City, Gartner Management is is a place uh, to look. Whether you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, one spot, you need a little office such as this guy, or you got multiple employees, uh, just you know, give way to call. He can get you hooked up either way. 780-808-5025. And now let's get on to that tale of the tape brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals delivering to your farm, commercial, or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at hancockpetroleum.ca. He currently serves as executive editor and chief correspondent for ClimateDepot.com. He is the author of the 2022 book, The Great Reset, Global Elites, and the Permanent Lockdown, and is a frequent guest on radio and television talk shows, including CNN, Fox News, and the BBC. I'm talking about Mark Morano. So buckle up. Here we go. Hi, this is Mark Morano. This is Mark Morano, author of The Great (laughs) Reset. Hey. Cease. Desist. Okay. Here. Hi, this is Mark Morano, author of The Great Reset. <laughs> Hi, this is okay. Hi, this is Mark Morano, author of The Great Reset. You're listening to the Sean Newman Show and a chorus of dogs barking. Enjoy. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mark Morano. So, first off, sir, thanks for hopping on. Thank you very much. Happy to be here today. Looking forward to it. Now, uh, I I have no idea. My listeners are um, well-versed. And saying that, there's going to be few or maybe many who have never heard of you. So I want to start with who is Mark, uh, long or short as you want to go with that, Mark, uh, but just some background information so people can get a feel for who we're listening to. I'm an investigative journalist by background, and I uh, started my career 
actually in politics, which a lot of us do as a campaign manager for local races. And then I worked as Rush Limbaugh's. This wasn't the investigative part, but I was Rush Limbaugh's man in Washington for his TV show, which was politics and media and entertainment. I had a blast for four years from 1992 to 1996. I was his man in Washington, wore a hat, trench coat, went to all the fundraisers, Capitol Hill events. Went to Arkansas during Clinton's transition, uh, not his transition as it means today, but during the transition from the Bush presidency to Clinton administration in 1992. And um, I had a great time in Limbaugh. I had my camera stolen at the White House. I had, was uh, escorted out by police from Democratic fundraisers. Just had a great time working with that show. It really gave me a, a hints of politics and entertainment. So then I went and worked as, for a show called American Investigator, which was like a low budget 60 minutes. And I did a whole series of environmental stories on endangered species, uh, wetlands. And, a, and I did a big documentary on the Amazon rainforest, how the claims about it were way overblown. And actually, since I did that, and that came out in the year 2000. Amazon is now, you know, the, even the New York Times admits for every acre of rainforest being cut, 50 are regenerating all the people who they were worried about with slash and burn agriculture, they've moved to big urban areas and cities and the jungle is actually not as threatened as they once thought. And that's according to the New York Times now. But I did a documentary on that. And then I worked for Cybercast News Service for years, started attending all these UN climate events. And then I went to work in the United States Senate Environment and Public Works Committee uh, for Senator James Inhofe and when he was the ranking member and then chairman in the U.S. Senate and got presided over as a Senate senior Senate staffer, Al Gore's testimony, all the scientists. I wrote a thousand dissenting scientists report uh, in the U.S. Senate. It started with 400 and the numbers kept growing. We called up scientists from around the world that talked to us. Anyway, started Climate Depot in 2009. And since then, I've been covering climate energy news daily. And that is all now morphing into this great reset. So I wrote a book, Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, a few years ago. Last year, I released Green Fraud about the Green New Deal. And this year is the great reset book. Okay, that was a lot. Well, I want to start here. Uh, you talk about being an investigative, uh, investigative journalist. Uh, what did you stumble upon? Did you go in thinking one thing and it changed your mind? Or did you go in thinking, this is what I think, and you found that? I I'm curious. That's a great question. Initially, like we're talking about like the Amazon, one of the things I always said, I was a Republican, except when it came to environmental issues. So initially, it wasn't until the Rio Earth Summit in 1992 that I reconsidered my environmental views because I essentially I was watching all these documentaries, uh, National Geographic, I loved all the nature stuff and how the rainforest was disappearing. The species were all going extinct. And it was after it was Dixie Lee Ray, who was a nuclear physicist who went to the Rio Earth Summit and attended it when George H.W. Bush went. And they were, she was reporting back on all this. You know, the Amazon is not endangered. Don't believe all this. So I started my own investigation on that very skeptically at first. And I was actually shocked and then culminating years later with this Amazon rainforest documentary. But that's one example of where I learned. So by the time climate came along, I was very skeptical. And I would actually say my skepticism only grew as I investigated it because I realized it was so many parts politics and very few parts science. It was a campaign cause narrative. So for the last 20 years, and I'm not saying this is exaggeration, I probably attended 16 or 17 out of the last 21 United Nations conference all around the world. So I've been to Bali. I've been to South America. I've been to Africa multiple times. I'm going to Egypt this November. I was in Madrid, uh, Scotland last year. I was in Madrid before that, uh, wherever they have these summits. And I spend 
over a week there talking to people. I've debated the head of the UN IPCC, former head, Regenda Pachari. I debated Bill Nye, the science guy. I'm not a scientist, I like to say, but I play one on TV. But no, I come in as an investigative journalist, so I don't pretend to be a scientist. But I study, I talk to all the scientists and I report on what the scientists say. And I actually, the more important part when it comes to climate change is studying how they put the face of the climate consensus together and how the UN climate panel operates. When you have the former chairman of the UN climate panel say, global warming is my religion and we are at the beck and call of governments. If they want a different product, we'll produce a different product. In other words, politics demands a climate crisis and the UN climate panel is more than willing to produce it, especially when the head of it believes global warming is his religion. So you're saying that politics directs the climate emergency. Politics directs the climate emergency. Politics directed the COVID solutions. It The science, as we've heard you know, with a capital T, is literally done in support of policies already made. In this new book I have, The Great Reset, I devoted an entire chapter to the corruption of scientists, going back to Dwight David Eisenhower's inaugural, not inaugural, but his farewell address from the presidency in 1961, warning about how a government grant is going to be a substitute for real science. In other words, it doesn't matter what the facts are. If you're funded to show a climate emergency, if you're funded to show you know, that COVID's gonna run amok unless we have lockdowns, your study is going to show that because that's what you were funded for. And if you go against it, you run into cancel culture, you run into defunding, you run into being I profile in the book, Nobel Prize winning epidemiologist uh, who was uninvited from scientific conferences because he didn't support lockdowns during COVID. This is how they create the illusion of consensus. All scientists agree. But if you disagree, you're deplatformed, canceled, defunded and uninvited. So suddenly you don't exist anymore. So guess what? All the remaining scientists still agree because they don't have the courage to stand up to the science. Well, I tell you what, I, uh, I it, to just have a little bit of fun, last night I watched a David Attenborough uh, documentary on the world um, he driving can be off. very of good, but then he gets very wacky and political. But well, his, but his, what the you cinematography, the narration, the it's a great, he's a great filmmaker. It's just that you know he goes off off the reservation many times. But go ahead. But well, I, what I was going to say is, uh, I think for my audience in particular, you know, uh, we for the audience, I've never met Mark before, so this is a first, uh, a sure. first go around, which is which is fun to always meet new people. But uh, for my audience, you know, I would say I've watched all the documentaries and I love the planet, and you know, I, I yeah. get all this. And then COVID hit, and then I started asking questions. And the further you went down, the more questions you had. And I mean, you don't have to talk about people being canceled and doctors being thrown out. And I've interviewed half of them, right? And the audience yeah. has got to hear half of them. And you're like, oh. And as soon as you go, oh, you start to look at everything and go, so what else aren't they telling us? And so when you when you yeah. talk, I want to believe uh, what you're talking about, but it's but at the same time, I don't want the planet to fall apart, right? It's a yeah. funny little um, uh, <laughs> position I'm in, right? You're one of the first people I've talked about it. I hope to do plenty on this as I move forward because uh, it's being thrown at us over and over and over again. And if people aren't educated uh, to talk about some different things and hear some different people speak, then what gets to carry on is the narrative. Yes. And in fact, if you look at the climate and when I give a presentation or you can look at my books, I start out with how we've radically improved the environment. So being a climate change skeptic or being against the Green New Deal or being against the U.N. Paris Climate Agreement, 
does not mean you hate the earth. It does not mean you you want to see pollution everywhere and you're just you're a big you know, industry funded denier. I'm not. They've always accused me. You're an Exxon. You're an oil spokesman. Oil companies wouldn't give me a cent. And, here, and the bottom line is ExxonMobil gave to conservative groups years ago, but they stopped in 2006. But it wasn't for climate denial. They just gave to all groups. But then they got shamed into not doing it. And ExxonMobil and all these big oil companies support the Paris Agreement. They support carbon taxes. They support all the government mandates and regulations because they're big conglomerates and it crushes the smaller competitors. They can buy them up. They want nothing to do with people like me. So that's one of the things you'll hear. Oh, he's an oil lobbyist. I've never been a lobbyist in my life. Almost all my money comes from just individual donations at our organization. We're a think tank in Washington, D.C. So. Here's the bottom line. We've radically improved air and water quality since the first Earth Day in 1970. And we've done it to the point where now the World Health Organization recognizes the United States as one of the cleanest air and air quality and environments in the world. We're better than most of Europe, Germany, Austria. I mean, the list. And because of that, the climate activists had to do something in order to keep this sort of regulatory state going because they, had a, they and I, I have mainstream journalists in my book saying we've largely solved the problem of pollution. That's been solved. You know, clean air, clean water. There's a few bad spots. Flint, Michigan with lead. Uh, I think it's Memphis. I want to say Tennessee right now that has a horrible infrastructure situation. You can't even drink the water. And that but that's man made failure. And that's not from that's bad po- political decision making and city planning. But essentially, We've done all this through at the same time we've cleaned all the air up. We've done it through huge wealth creation, huge population increases and, uh, and also sensible regulations. You know, and the idea is the regulations don't do as much as you think, because once the public focus of the first Earth Day was on the filthy rivers of the Northeast and their smog and air quality, businesses got the message. They were shamed, if nothing else. And technology came online and we were able to clean all that up. So if you look back, it's some of the cases, 80, 90 percent improvements in all of these pollutants fr- in our air quality from the first Earth Day. Ha- oh, sorry about that. There's a dog's over here. fighting. <laughs> all good. <laughs> Dog tumbled down the steps. He's OK. OK. So when you when you look at that, we, we, we've solved that problem. So what they've done and Al Gore is a big champion. They've calling carbon dioxide a pollutant in order to justify you know, a lot of their draconian measures. Now, humans inhale oxygen, we exhale carbon dioxide. They're claiming that what we exhale is is a pollutant. There's one UK funded government report that actually says we need to regulate carbon dioxide as the same way we do asbestos, which causes mesothemiosa and horrible cancers. Well, that's a first, even for me, this was a 2019 or 20 report that the UK government paid for. Imagine human breath is regulated as asbestos. The Obama administration, Biden administration tried to regulate CO2 as a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. That's what this big Supreme Court case was. This was a major blow to their efforts, because if you can declare human breath a pollutant, you can pretty much regulate any aspect of human society you want. Uh, And that also goes to the overpopulation uh, agenda. So anyway, make a long story short. Being for the environment has nothing to do with climate. So then the longest, even shorter, making it really short, we are not at unprecedented climate conditions. Even the first UN report showed the medieval warm period, about 1500 AD, much warmer than today. And then they said, oh, we have to get rid of the medieval warm period. Literally, we had a scientist testify before our committee. He heard from his colleagues that that was ruining the climate change narrative. So a few years after that chart that showed the medieval warm period up here, current temperatures here, the UN erased it, came up with a new chart that showed 
temperatures the last thousand years flat. And then the 20th century, a big spike, big spike in temperature. And they claimed that they had to make adjustments and new analysis. And that's how they came up with very convenient for their uh, narrative. Same thing right now is happening. We have 1930s Biden's EPA, which I include in all my talks and it's on my website. The 1930s heat waves were 10 times higher than today. Maybe more. Like if you look at the state, then 75% of heat records were set before 1950. The 1930s were hot. It was the era of the Dust Bowl, Grapes of Wrath, you know, the, all of the all of the droughts. But what's happening now? A Texas A&M professor has publicly announced we got to get rid of these charts. And he wants to redo the temperature analysis from the 1930s and radically cool it so that we can show current temperatures higher than then. This is the kind of things when I say I don't need a climatological degree to investigate these kind of things that happen in the climate community. And this is what we're dealing with. So the short bottom line and the long and short of it is climate change is governed by hundreds of factors, tilt to the earth's axis, water vapor, methane, clouds, ocean cycles, solar, solar inputs, and carbon dioxide, methane, other gases, although methane is considered an irrelevant greenhouse gas because it disappears in the atmosphere. But essentially, this is the idea that they've done is politically selected carbon dioxide as some kind of control knob. And they want to reorder a radical transformation in their own words, society in order to fight this menace of CO2, ignoring all the other factors. If they're going to call us climate deniers, I'm going to call them natural climate, uh, natural climate change deniers or climate cause deniers. They're ignoring all the natural factors that have changed climate. And one last point. 90% of Earth's history has had higher CO2 levels than today and higher temperatures than today. 90% of Earth's history was too warm for ice at either pole. We're, we're in the, at either pole. We're in the 10% coldest, geologically speaking. We're in the lowest level, geologically speaking, of Earth's history with carbon dioxide. You mentioned 1970 was the first Earth Day. Did I catch that date right? Yes, that's right. Okay. Where along the way does it go from shaming companies into doing what's right? Because I assume at that point, and maybe for right. 20 years, 30 years, whatever the number is, um, people need to get their act together. And yeah. I assume moving in the in the future, you're not against uh, innovation and making things better. Jeez, that, I, I think that's what uh, has been great about the North America where we all live, is Absolutely. the innovation and development and new technologies, all that stuff. But since 1970, the first Earth Day, where does it go off the rails then, where it becomes the science is settled, which is a scary thought. Um, debate is shunned. Uh, people who talk against it, <laughs> thrown over here. Uh, let's rewrite the book so it makes it people understand. Wh where along the lines does it go off the rails? Well, first of all, the first Earth Day had 19 was featured man-made global cooling. So before fossil fuels caused global warming, fossil fuels caused global cooling. And I have a whole chapter on this in my previous book, Green Fraud. Literally, the CIA did a report warning of man-made global cooling, saying it's going to national security threat. There were reports and scientists claiming that bad weather events, floods and droughts were caused by man-made global cooling. It was so bad, they wanted to drop soot on the Arctic so it would absorb sun so we'd keep the ice from growing too much on the poles. That morphed as because that was a cold period Then it warmed up. And by the time the 80s come around, everyone's on board with global warming. Al Gore starts having hearings. And, you know, first of all, a NASA scientist, 1981, too, starts warning. Al Gore has his first hearing, I think, 1984. But you asked me when it goes off the rails. One year in particular, 1988. That's the year the United Nations said, we're going to form a climate panel and we're going to look into this causes of climate change and see if carbon dioxide is really a problem now. As a bonus, not only did the UN get to appoint itself in charge of looking at whether CO2 was causing a climate crisis, 
it got to be in charge of any solution if it was, in fact, causing a climate crisis. Hence, all these UN climate summits with all the Hollywood celebrities and all the money and the $100 billion climate fund. So guess what? Once you started a self-perpetuating lobbying organization like the UN Climate Panel, they had no incentive to ever say, you know what, carbon dioxide isn't driving a climate crisis. If they did, they would no longer be able to meet in places like Bali and Cancun and all over South America and all these these exotic resorts. And then they also wouldn't be in charge of the solution. So that was the red letter year, so to speak, 1988. It was also the year that a NASA scientist went and testified before the Senate that the Earth, you know, we're facing a dangerous global warming and this is a catastrophe coming. And that guy's name was James Hansen, who later got, he was NASA's lead global warming scientist, later got arrested half a dozen times protesting global warming, taken away in handcuffs. And his, he, he actually endorsed a book calling, suggesting that we get rid of industrial c- civilization and, and even bomb our cities back. This is the kind of Unabomber style thinking we had as the head of NASA. So that year is important. UN, 1988, UN Climate Panel starts and NASA goes off the rails. Once that happens, the media backs it up. The money starts flowing, academia gets it, and that's when dissent became impossible. Because in the 1970s, I actually feature in my book actual vigorous debates between scientists worried about rising CO2 and those saying that it's global cooling. So you had the global warming uh, scientists versus the global cooling scientists. You were actually allowed to have debate. The New York Times featured some scientists believe this, others believe that. But later, that kind of reporting went out the window and it became all scientists agree. And if you don't, we saw what happened with the COVID scientists. Same thing. I, I knew all was happening at COVID because I'd seen it all decades before in the climate movement. Well, I- yeah, I, I uh, it's interesting that New York Times and and different uh, uh, you having a, a different peer purview than myself, uh, me being younger and just not you know I go where's all the debate like why can't I watch to, you know I watched you and Bill Nye and I watched you and uh, another guy on CNN I can't think of his name or there's two of them and I was like man wouldn't that be a fantastic podcast you know sit you down around the table good and let's luck just... finding someone there's actually a couple now that are willing to debate uh very few though uh there's you know one name is andrew Dessler, who's willing to debate on the climate activist side and another is gerald cutney but he's not really a scientist i think he's a you know an author but there's been a couple debates shocking but we went like a decade with no debates almost a decade with no debates allowed because what happened was and I write about this 2007, they had a big debate in New York City with with NASA scientists and uh, head of environmental groups and other big, big scientists, three against three. Michael Crichton was on the skeptical side, a UK scientist and Richard Lindzen from MIT. They polled the audience of hundreds of New Yorkers before is climate a crisis. They overwhelmingly voted yes. 90 minute debate, same audience. They polled again, flipped overwhelmingly voted climate is not a crisis. Gavin Schmidt, who's now the head of NASA's climate science division, he was the junior guy back then in 2007, announced to the world, and this is an important point, he said, we were terrible in this debate, these debates aren't worth having, we were out debated, we can no longer agree to these debates. And that sent a message out that even two years later, Scott Pelley, CBS News anchor, said, I won't feature a climate denier on CBS News for the same reason I won't feature a Holocaust denier. So then that whole demonization and there was no way they were going to allow this. This is also right after Al Gore wins his Nobel Prize. They figured they didn't want any more debates because they own the media. They owned academia. They own the funding. 
they own the international organizations and they were intimidating anyone who disagreed as being anti-science, a denier, same way you saw with anyone who challenged a COVID mask mandate or COVID vax or a COVID lockdown. You were immediately against the interests of the state and you had to be destroyed, defunded, canceled. And that's what they were doing decades ago in the climate movement. The only difference maybe then, uh, and I don't know if you'll agree with me or not, but uh, the pushback immediately on a lot of the COVID, uh, and it, for some it was right away, for others it took some time, but uh, with COVID in particular, the pushback seen by uh, not a small fringe, as our Prime Minister would say, but uh, uh, a good solid chunk of the population pushed back immediately, or in the first yes. two years. You know, when you talk about uh, 1988, I go... Holy crap, that's pretty much my lifetime. Born in 86. I've <laughs> yeah. never known I've just never known anything but watching the documentaries, uh mm -hmm. hearing different things. And yet yes. and yet when I I come from the farm, uh growing up, we went through the 90s, which was probably the worst drought uh that we've had here in my lifetime, you know, like where all the sloughs, waters, dugouts, everything was dry. It was just a struggle. There were just dead birds yeah. everywhere. And now that's very anecdotal evidence. But I mean, now it's the complete opposite, right? Everything's full. And we've had more water over the course of the past probably two decades than we did growing up. But I just look at the the dates and I go, man, like what changes in a lifetime is, is the messaging and the fact that I've never seen um, people actively debate not only climate, just a whole plethora of issues and now we're starting to snowball into this you know where <laughs> like we joke up here um you know when it comes to energy like we have eight months of winter where like you know the, the wind solar debate up here is almost laughable because it's like well we'll all freeze like i mean at the end of the day we will <laughs> yes. literally all freeze that like we have minus 40 for like three straight weeks in the middle of of uh of winter and Winter isn't this short little stint. It is a huge chunk of living in the Great White North. And so to to have more debate and and try and get the right answer seems sensible, but that isn't what um, the mainstream narrative pushes. No, it's not. In fact, it was a whole weird narrative happening now. Kathy Hochul from saying her name, the governor of New York, actually is telling Trump supporters, this is a bizarre example, to leave the state. We don't want you here. Go to Florida. Take your like radical ideology with you. Charlie Chris running against Ron DeSantis in Florida openly just announced last week he doesn't want votes of anyone who would like Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. He doesn't want your vote. Don't vote for him. And Disney. NBA, NFL, they have the same attitude. We don't care if the fans don't like what we're doing. We're going to inject politics. We're going to inject critical race theory. We're going to do wokeness and all of this. And we don't care who, what business we lose. All the corporations. It's a new trend where it's like, this is what we decided. We are morally right. So you guys are basically immoral, evil, and you are going to be marginalized. This is what China does with a social credit system. This is how the West is imitating China. And it's the exact same concept. In other words, they don't want to persuade you. So that's why they don't care about debate. They want to marginalize you until you comply. They could care less whether you agree, whether they could persuade you. They're not interested. Look at Greta Thunberg. Her famous expression was, I want you to panic uh, and I want you to be afraid. This is her phrase. Why? Because if you're panicked and afraid, you're willing to accept solutions that you wouldn't otherwise have. And there's also no time for reason, debate and thought or analysis. This is why 
COVID is leading to a great reset because the, they did a climate, uh, they did a COVID emergency declaration in March of 2020, sadly signed by President Trump. Greatest mistake of his presidency. It cost him his presidency. I write about that in the book. It ended the economy and it caused all the voting changes, allowed all the mail in for COVID safety. And anyway, he signed his own election loss when he signed that in March of 2020. But what it did was it granted executive and unelected bureaucrats Chinese one party authority, one party rule overnight. So any mayor or governor could issue stay at home orders, lockdowns, uh, mask mandates, mask mandates, curfews, cancel weddings, funerals, close churches, close gyms by executive order. No need for messiness. This is why politicians from Justin Trudeau to uh, the UN climate chief to Obama administration, the New York Times comments have praised China's one party rule for decades. I show this in the book, have their actual quotes. Justin Trudeau was like, I have great admiration for. Yeah, China. I think every Canadian knows that. Right. Like yeah. it's it's scary. So that's the whole point. So now COVID and the lockdowns and the emergency powers gave them Chinese one party rule. They didn't have to have a vote of Congress, Parliament, City Council, Town Hall. All out the window. You could just do what was right. You were morally, you were saving lives. And now, to tie this all together, this is part of the Great Reset. Associated Press reported last month in July, I guess it's two months ago now, that Joe Biden was set to declare a national climate emergency, giving him 130 executive powers, but not just Joe Biden. Governors, mayors who now want to be able to say we can control thermostats, we can control your vehicle, we can ban gas powered cars, we can close gas stations, we can do car free cities, we're going to ban cars from going in because we have to control, we have to save the climate. No vote of Congress for any of that. No vote of town council, no vote of House of State representatives. It's all because it's an emergency. And you say, oh, well, the courts won't allow it. Well, it took two years for one Donald Trump appointed federal judge to stop mask mandates on on airplanes and buses and trains so they can get a lot of damage done before any judge, federal judge catches up or Supreme Court's even longer to catch up, at least here in America. So this is what we're facing is rule by emergency decree. And that's what my book's about. And I, I go through the origins. I have two chapters devoted to the COVID climate connection and how they want to morph 230 medical journals, Harvard Medical School, Journal Nature in unison saying we need to have COVID style lockdowns for the climate on energy lockdowns using the same template we did for COVID. And that same template is what we're going to see. Emergency powers. The whole point is the Chinification of the once free West bypass democracy. This is a moral imperative. It's an emergency. We don't have time to bore ourselves with the process of democracy. So we've got to do this. This is where we are. And that's why a long roundabout way of answering your question, they don't give a bleep about debate. It's not necessary. They're morally superior to us. So, that's what, so that's what you see coming here in the near future is the, the COVID uh, crisis is going to morph into what we're seeing. I mean, there's been enough talk about it, but a climate uh, uh, COVID lockdowns into a climate lockdown essentially is what you're, you're seeing. Yeah. Well, that's what they're advocating for. And actually what we're seeing is we're seeing the great reset in action since March of 2020. Now, let me explain If this were, we were having this conversation in 1993 or something on George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, and he was president, he left in 93. He had called for a new world order. And there was a lot of shadowy conspiracy theory. Oh, there's a new world order. This is, you know, uh, the, the Bilderbergs. This is uh, you know, all these different groups that the, the, the um, 
uh, Council on Foreign Relations, but it was shadowy and it didn't really affect your life. Fast forward. Everyone's life has been affected. Everyone's life is being affected. Here's the tenets of the Great Reset. It comes from the World Economic Forum, but it's a collusion between the United Nations, World Health, all of the Fortune 500 companies that go, all the world leaders, the cabinets. They go through a training program. A ha- you know, the, the head of it has bragged that half of the cabinets in countries like Canada are World Economic Forum graduates. We penetrate the cabinets, is what uh, Klaus Schwab says. But here's where we're actually seeing the Great Reset. This isn't a theoretical thing. We're living through it. They're collapsing our energy supply, forcing shortages. And we're seeing this globally. We're seeing it particularly in Europe, particularly in the U.S. I haven't followed Canada as much. Are you guys facing massive blackouts this winter? But we sure are here, and especially in places like California, even Texas. How's Canada? I I I, I got to be honest. Uh, I think we're doing okay, but I live in Alberta, where like there's just energy galore, and I think it's going to be expensive at times. But I haven't seen anything on shortages. You know, I I I mean, I guess it's because of what you previously said. They couldn't do the solar and wind mandates there because it just would have been so absurd. Like you mentioned, you know, weeks of below forty degree, negative forty. So it's not as bad. But here's the thing. Okay, I, they're creating now energy shortages. Across the world, including Canada, they're going after high yield agriculture. The Netherlands farms are trying to shut down over 11,000 Netherlands farmers, chiefly small, independent, family run, generational owned farms, not the ones that are owned. Bill Gates, America's largest farmland owner, China gobbling up farmland, equity asset firms. They're not going to those aren't the ones that are going to close. It's the ones that are going to be against the woke agenda that aren't going to go along with the net zero agenda. They're shutting it down because they say the climate can't handle the agriculture because of the nitrous oxide emissions in the atmosphere, creating more warming. So this is in the Netherlands. It's the number one meat exporter in Europe. They're shutting down the agriculture. Australia just started the same thing, going after high yield agriculture, decimate farming. They're going to artificially create expensive and potentially food shortages. Down there, we have California announcing the end of the internal gas-powered car. 14 states set to follow. Biden administration loves it. World Bank has announced they're going to stop funding or they need to stop funding money for gas-powered cars at the automaker level. Australian banks are going to stop giving car loans if you choose to buy a gas-powered car because it's bad for the earth. And then the final thing is First Amendment. You know, this is government in the United States here. We, we have an amendment that says you can't violate free speech. Well, so what the Biden administration has done and with the, under the Great Reset, you have a corporate government collusion. So it's not really the government per se. It's this private company. And aren't you a free marketer? You can't be against a private company. They can do what they want. Meanwhile, we're finding just this week, Freedom of Information Act, Biden administration gave lists of individuals to, to remove from social media and the Internet. Social media was companies got it. Yes, we're on it. Delete it. Delete it. Here's a website. Get rid of this. We're on it. We delete it. So this corporate government collusion, just remember, big tech censorship is government censorship. So this is what we're witnessing. Collapse of food, transportation, energy, and your ability to for free speech. Those are all tenants of the Great Reset. Those are all accelerated post-COVID uh, lockdowns. That is where the Great Reset comes. It's called a narrow, rare opportunity by which we can reset the global order. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're collapsing current systems to rebuild back up in their in their vision of a sustainable society. Well, you told me off the start of this, we're going to we're going to aim to talk about some positives. Right now, you painted me a very bleak <laughs> picture, Mark. I was going to give you 10 seconds of positive. Like <laughs> we need to fight, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and then go gouge your eyes out. It's over. Good night. Good night. Da, da. <laughs>
<laughs> where where is the positive here? You know, like okay. where is the positive? The positive is the Netherlands farm rebellion. They're they are taking over the capital. The farmers aren't taking it. The the freedom fighters and the convoy in Canada was a huge positive. All the protests throughout Europe and England and France and, and Germany against the vax mandates, all the protests in New Zealand and Australia, not always covered by the media. The spirit is there. But what we need is we need the ability to start changing the narrative as well. And where it comes was, I know your conservative party in Canada, or I guess the, the not, you know, the against big government, because I don't want to give confusing terms. It's always different. You know, the Liberal Party can be conservative. But anyway, they are very weak from everything I've seen. And I can't remember. You have a, the, the lady who's your minority spokesman against Trudeau in the parliament. What's her name? Um, she's maybe mid-50s, blonde hair. Uh, anyway, I follow Canadian politics. She's like the spokesman for the minority in Canada. Jeez, so, Louise, I feel like I'm a complete moron I, right now, Mark. I, I can't I'm think of her name. But anyway, blank I watch her. I watch her. I could look it up. Your listeners might know. But I watched her extensively during the Freedom Convoy. And the problem is they're just they're not as near, nowhere near as strong. If we're going to have leaders opposing this, we need to change the narrative. They can't be intimidated by being called a covid denier, covid lockdown denier or a climate denier. We need to change the narrative. And in the book, I go through the example of the school board, uh, the localist, smallest level. People couldn't have foreseen it. Angry parents showing up at school boards in the United States. I profile a few key places, one of them being Virginia, which literally changed national politics. Angry parents got showed up arguing against the critical race theory, against transgender ideology, against COVID theater, masking kids, against um, the you know, social distancing and lockdowns, putting their kids in plastic bubbles or playing a saxophone with a mask on and a slit to put the I mean, it's insane stuff. <laughs> they were arrested, dragged out. Meetings got ugly. The U.S. Department of Justice declared that many of these parents were you know, considered domestic terrorists because they were fighting the school boards. This toppled a Democratic state of Virginia, and it went to a Republican for the first time. It shocked the country, shocked the Democrats. New Jersey, almost the same thing happened without as much rebellion, and that shocked them. So the Democratic Party did focus groups, and I write about this in the last chapter. As reported by The New York Times, they found that their own base wanted to return to normal. Once these elections happened, the Democratic Party announced the mayors that the science had changed. And now that, you know, that we can remove the lockdowns and the vast mandates in the, in the United States and all the major cities. So the science had changed. The political science had changed. So with, because of these elections, because of these angry parents spurring a collapse of the uh, political uh, political order, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, New York, Baltimore, Washington dropped the vax mandates almost immediately after these. And this is I conclude this in just to show you the power of, of people at the localist level of government. Yeah, the, the power of the people. That's that's what we saw here in Canada when you, you come back to the Freedom Convoy. Yes. Um, you know, like uh, everybody said, oh, no, they were going to drop the mandates. They're going to drop the mandates. I'm like, I, I don't think you should fool yourself that way. Yeah. Because as soon as that started to happen and there was a leg to stand on, maybe they wanted to, maybe they didn't. I have no idea. But as soon as they saw how much the population was in favor of what was going on with the truckers, I mean... Uh, here in Alberta, Saskatchewan, yeah. things started to drop very quickly, like rapidly, like they almost overnight started to open things up. Yes. Right? And you go, oh, 
right? And uh, I think the population um, started to understand that, that uh, not only just protesting, but like a, a, a focused protest that the population is on board with is very, very, very impactful. Absolutely. And, you know, you can't always predict what's going to work, what's not. I give the example of the Berlin Wall in the book, in the last chapter. The Berlin Wall fell in 1989, live on CNN, not because the East German government said, hey, you know, 40 years of Soviet oppression in Eastern Europe, let's end it, let's tear down the wall. It ended because the people of East Germany, in a million different ways, expressed that they were no longer willing to tolerate or live under tyranny. And the writing was on the wall and they'd had enough and it was a spontaneous moment in human history. This is the kind of thing we need to do, but we need to focus and we need to understand the narratives. We need to understand what's coming at us. And just to be clear, because I don't think I actually laid out the Great Reset, which I write about in the book, began in June of 2020, the narrow rear window of opportunity to reset the world from the World Economic Forum. But their goals are very simple. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. You're, uh, you'll have no privacy. Life will never be better. You won't be eating any more meat. Climate change will be the number one priority. And um, the U.S. will no longer be a superpower. These are their these are their goals and priorities. And if you look at it from that lens, you know, they're going after everything. They're going after when when they bankrupt the economy and you have the largest transfer of wealth from poor and middle class to the wealthy during a lockdown. And everyone loves a lockdown and climate activists then pile on and say, if we can do this for a virus, we can do it for climate because climate activists had called for planned recessions to fight global warming for years as part of a de economic degrowth movement. So what they do is that's where equity asset firms come in. That's where China comes in. That's where Bill Gates buying up farmland. That's what's going to happen in the Netherlands when these poor family generational owned farms collapse. They're either going to be converted to something else or equity asset firms are going to come in. So it's this shift, not only of money to fewer people, concentration of wealth. I sound like Bernie Sanders now, but it's also decisions and uh, and of all the decisions in, of your life is all going to concentrated to fewer and fewer hands. In other words, people didn't vote to have energy shortages and fossil fuels banned. We didn't vote to ban the gas powered car. In California, it was an executive order that an unelected a bureaucratic board decided it. We didn't vote to have stop eating meat, but that's their goal. That's what they're going to take us. We didn't vote to end car ownership, but the World Economics Forum pushing that. The UK Transportation Secretary actually said earlier this year that owning a car is outdated 20th century thinking. They're going for freedom of movement here and a climate emergency on top of the continuing COVID emergency. I don't know about Canada, but we're still living under the COVID emergency. Joe Biden's extended it every possible chance he gets. Well, I mean, we'll as a, 2023. if you're a Canadian and you're unvaccinated, you can't come into the United States, right? So you leave the country. They let you leave the Canada. Uh, you can go to a few different places uh, that are allowing it now, but you know our biggest uh, border crossing is the United yeah. States, and if you're not, uh, don't have that's the COVID a U.S. Shot, rule, though, right? That's a U.S. rule, and on the and way that goes back, back, and yeah. that's important. That's important to mention. Uh, what's the guy's name? Devoja, the the tennis player who was going to play in the U.S. Open, uh, he, Djokovic. Djokovic. The Biden administration was asked about that, and their answer was chilling. Well, well, we have no say in that. You know, that's a CDC guideline. You know, what can we do about it? You know, we, we have no say in that. Yeah, we'd love the guy to come play, but we can't control it. This is where it comes. This is the great reset in action. Elected officials, either in reality or in, in practice, claim they have no authority because this deep state administrative state behind the scenes has all the power. In other words, we'd love the guy to come, but what are we going to do? The you know, Centers for Disease Control, that's their guidelines. You know, take it up with them. 
They're an unelected bureaucracy. How do you take it up with them? They have no accountability to anyone. So this is what we're dealing with. And that's where they want a WHO pandemic treaty. That's the other scary thing in the book. I detail if they get this and they all, and Biden administration was pushing hard for it. I'm sure Justin Trudeau would be all for it. A Bill Gates funded scientist at the WHO could declare a pandemic emergency and you'd have global lockdowns, global global internet shutdown. Yeah. Global travel ban, global vaccine mandates. That's their ultimate goal, because just like climate, we can't have national sovereignty. This is a global problem. We've got to all and all they mean when they say global or globalization, it means fewer and fewer people deciding what's best for the rest of us. It means we have less choice and less freedom, less democracy. It's that simple. That's the Great Reset. That's what my book's about. No reason to buy it. Don't buy it. I just told you everything. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, I, I, tell you, I tell you what, uh, as a listener, uh, if they wanted to find your book, uh, where, where do they go to find it? One, I'm sure it's pretty easy. But two, what's the name of it? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, it's it's you can buy it on Amazon. And, and I've gotten a lot of pushback people on Twitter and other places saying you trash Amazon in the book and you talk about, you know, how they profited and uh, you know well, all the other businesses closed. And here you are. You know, now you're selling your book on Amazon. Well, if Amazon's willing to sell a great reset book and climate denial books, you can't you can't necessarily fight that. But, you know, you can buy it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart. I can also you can also go to climatedepot.com, which will take you probably to Amazon. Uh, but the book is called <laughs> The Great Reset. Global Elites and the Permanent Lockdown. That's the title of the book. And I sometimes feel like I guess it was Donald Trump on David Letterman where he was railing about China and then he was pushing his new tie line and David Letterman goes, and where was your ties made? And Donald Trump looks, he's like, oh, made in China. It's like, oh, yo, boo bang, you know, rim shot. I'll, um, uh, I'll, put a, I'll, put a, I'll put a link in the, in the show notes for people and make it e- nice you. and easy. That way they can just click and, and it takes them uh, right to them. Here, before I let you go, Mark, uh, let's do the final question uh, brought to you by Crude Master Transport. Uh, shout out to Heath and Tracy McDonald, supporters of the podcast since the very beginning. It's Heath's words. He says, if you're going to stand behind something, that, uh, if you're going to stand behind something, then stand behind it. What's one thing Mark stands behind? I, fe- I have a feeling that I'm going to have to ask this question first. I keep saying this because after an hour, well, not quite an hour, I know kind of exactly where you're standing. But what's one thing Mark stands behind? I stand on, uh, I'm, I'm probably the most at this point against globalization and for as local a control as possible. That's sort of my guiding principle. If you read the book, you realize that the more you can have local control, even of your dogs barking, but the local, more you can have local control of, of your political economic decisions, the better off a society is. The more you give it to further and further away, the more tyranny you're going to be on your post. So that's the biggest thing is local control, decentralization in terms of my guiding political principle. Well, I appreciate you giving me some time. I hope uh, I can uh, entice you to come back on here in the future. Either sure, way, yeah, yeah, it's been it's been an enjoyable, uh, you know, 45 minutes ish. And uh, I appreciate you giving me some time this morning. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it.